I've come to really love uh, the Buddhist teachings and this practice because uh, I find that what he says and where it can take us is really so profound. Um, one of his more, one of the Buddhas, at least as far as we can tell from what we can read, one of his more profound and um, bold statements is that the sublime truth has been discerned by the Tathagata, how he referred to himself. Namely, liberation of heart-mind, this word chitta, through non-clinging. Liberation through non-clinging. It's been discovered by me. Quite a bold statement. So what I want to talk about tonight is actually uh, an invitation to us to use mindfulness awareness to explore what's the problem with clinging anyway. You know, a lot of times we may hear a statement like this, liberation through non-clinging. Where does one's mind go with that? I know some people can think of liberation as meaning we're going somehow to achieve some amazing state of mind or heart. And it's a steady state, isn't it? You know, it's a steady state that you get to hang out in. And I guess non-clinging isn't there. Clinging isn't there. And we're free. But it's not about a state at all. There is nothing static. There is nothing steady state. One way you could think of liberation through non-clinging is just non-clinging, a moment-to-moment activity of mind, of heart. That's all there is anyway. This whole exploration we're doing of mindfulness wisdom is really using this quality of mind, this quality of awareness, uncolored by confusion, to explore and understand how the mind works. How does it work to create suffering? How does it work to allow freedom, wisdom to arise? And what's so far out is both of those trajectories are lawful. So one other way that the uh, freedom of heart and mind is described, or when um, the Buddha describes the path of awakening, it begins and ends with right view. And I think I mentioned samaditi is the word in Pali, so right view, wise view. Right is actually a little bit more accurate translation than wise. We like wise because we don't like right and wrong and tell me what to do and black and white. And so wise is nice. But as I think I said the first night, I like right view because I like view because it's actually more literal. Right view could be described as seeing or recognizing things as they actually are. Things being all the... Objects of our experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, all the activities of mind, recognizing also with mind as things actually are. And so what allows for, in a moment, the arising of the heart-mind of wisdom, which is a mind without clinging, isn't getting to some esoteric, far-out, blissful state. More likely, that'll give rise to clinging. But it's when, when... In a moment, this moment's experience is recognized really accurately, without distortion. Clinging makes no sense. 
It's not that we have to get out a pickaxe and dig all the moments of clinging out of our mind because forget about it. Not going to happen. We can understand how clinging works, just like we can understand, you know, how, how to run how to run the recorder. It's lawful. We can get interested in it. We can discover the true nature of how clinging works in a moment, just like anything else. And in exploring that, that exploring clinging with wise view, with right view, with mindfulness wisdom, that can be a moment giving rise to insight, just like anything else. Clinging is a perfectly valid object of investigation, of awareness to wake up from. So it may sound kind of simplistic, seeing things as they are. Another way of describing that, I mean, there's many, many ways, I'm just being very simple here, is recognizing things as they are being that it's all lawful process of cause and effect, that everything that's happening is a process. There is no static, self-existing entity anywhere. One of the my favorite Pali expression the last couple of years is um, yata buta, which is often translated as things as they are. And there's a, a phrase for one of the high levels of insight, yata buta jnana dasana, which is often translated knowledge and vision of things as they are, seeing things as they are. But I've been told by good friends who are Pali scholars, that's the language of Pali, that a more accurate translation is things as they have come to be in this moment. And I love that because that, to me, things as they are, we're back in static and things, right? Things as they are, boom, it's all solid. Things as they have come to be gives to me the sense of the infinite causes and conditions that have come together to be as it is in this moment. And now in this moment, new causes have come, and things as they have come to be in this moment becomes a cause and condition for things as they have come to be in this moment. There's no way you can pull anything out as a self-existing entity, including, guess who? Each of us. So, so the causes and conditions, the process of things as they have come to be in this moment, that we are all here sitting together in this room. Infinite, isn't it? Just start thinking about even the causes and conditions that you know about, never mind the ones we don't know about, the ones you know about that allowed just you to get here. And where can you ever stop? You you start by getting time off from work, by having enough money, by having your health, by having read something about it somewhere, by having an interest enough to come, by having family that supports you and a way to get here, and that this place is even here. How did this place even get here? Well, you heard in detail from Grove the other day, but then that's just you. But then how did you even get here? you got to go back to all the food you've been eating and the clothes you've been wearing and all the things that happened to you in your life and that time you were, you know, slipped on the ice but you didn't fall through and you survived that illness and your parents were both alive and made you, you know, and if your parents hadn't been alive, you wouldn't be here and you can't stop anywhere. And that's just you. Then it's all of us. Infinite. There's no way we can know all the causes and conditions. But things as they have come to be in this moment, seeing 
with right view that it's this process, and it's a lawful process. So it's not that we have to understand or or know every single cause and condition, but getting it that causes and conditions have their lawful effect and beginning to see accurately is what actually opens the heart and mind from the habits of clinging and aversion and confusion. And the Buddha even said, so what's the problem with clinging? When we don't recognize it, we don't rec- We can't see accurately. We can't recognize things as they are. The Buddha, someone, he talks about this Dhamma. Remember, the Dhamma means laws of nature, the way things are. So this Dhamma is visible here and now. And that's something that monks chant, you know. Hey, Pasako, come and see, visible here and now. And someone asked him, well, to what extent is this Dhamma visible here and now? And he said, to the extent that greed... Hatred, which is a form of aversion, and confusion, delusion, are not present in the chitta, not present in the psyche. Remember, moment to moment, not steady state. Just to the extent that greed, hatred, and confusion are not present in the mind, just to use that word simply in a moment, is what allows for accurate recognition. This a moment of awareness that isn't distorted by looking for something in specifically, I want this to happen, that isn't distorted by saying, well, this shouldn't be happening, get out of here, or by complete confusion, fogginess, or it's all about me. When those things are there, we can't recognize accurately. But many, many moments, what we've been talking about is as Mindful awareness, awareness with mindfulness. What we mean by that is just a moment of pure mind, of pure chitta, I would call it, when there's not greed, hatred, confusion, coloring it. And there's many moments of that, more than we might realize. We're not looking for that. In fact, mostly, we're forgetting to notice what's going on in the mind or the awareness at all. This is a way one of my teachers describes, talks about it. That's uh, experiential. This isn't like Abhidhamma language, but it's an experiential way of describing what we're doing here in the meditation that I find personally very helpful. She says, one way of describing our experience of meditation is in any moment of experience. So that's whatever's happening, as I keep saying, all it can be is at the sixth sense, the physical, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing with the body, or any mental experience, whatever's happening. Any experience has kind of two aspects, the way he talks about it. One aspect is the object, and he uses this word all, the object would be the sight, the sound, the smell, the thought, the mood, the emotion, you know, whatever we're aware of, that's the object. The other aspect of the experience is the mind knowing it. These things arise together. You can't separate. It's just a way of saying two sides of a coin. They arise together, but they have different, um, different natures, to say. So whatever object is arising, the sight, the sound of my voice, seeing, a mood that comes up, a pain in your life, whatever, whatever object's arising... The nature of that object in terms of this big way of meditating is simply to be known. Whatever's arising that can be known, it's an object. 
And the awareness, the mind, has the function of knowing. And it sounds kind of simple, but it's actually quite transformative if you keep paying attention in this way. They arise together, and when it starts to be that any object can be known, our tendency in life, because this is not just in meditation, in life, you know, whatever's happening can be known, our tendency is to get so um, involved with the object, whatever it is that's happening, with the experience, if you don't want to use the word object. That's, you know, and, and often when we talk about meditation, you go, well, what was happening? We ask you what's happening. That's already saying, tell me what experiences are arising. And we get involved in this, this knee pain or this back pain or this mood or this thought, and we like it, we don't like it. We get so involved in the experience that's happening, you know, that we forget often, even when we're being mindful, we forget to notice the knowing part, the aware part, the mind that's knowing. And so we can think we're being really mindful, really focusing on whatever experience is happening, but not noticing the mind that's aware or the what's going on in that mind that's aware. And so when we're aware, like, like I hope Guy doesn't mind, I will use, use as an example his story from last night of, he doesn't know I'm going to use this, his story from last night of when he got really angry at that guy when he was doing walking meditation, right? And as he said, he thought he was really mindful. He was walking down to that spot. He saw the guy. He's aware of stepping, stepping, stepping. He was aware of his thoughts. But the stepping was the object. The thoughts were the object. Seeing the guy was the object. Aware, aware, aware. Completely not noticing the other half of the equation, the mind that's knowing, and what is in what mental qualities are arising in that mind. Aversion. Aversion. And when he did, oh, this is aversion, right? In that moment of noticing aversion, aversion itself becomes the next object, the next experience. And then it's fine. Because awareness doesn't care. It really doesn't care what the object or the experience is. When awareness is not tainted, not distorted, in just a moment. Remember, it's all moment to moment. We don't have to hold on to anything. So guys walking, his awareness is filled with aversion, 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 which we think we're clear seeing when there's aversion. You know? and, and then suddenly, the awareness recognized the aversion. And in that moment, in that moment, was no longer colored by the, oh, aversion's like this. He said, I use that a lot. Aversion's like this. And in that moment of pure mind, pure citta, that's fine. That's a moment of clear seeing. That's a moment of yata bhuta, recognizing things as they have come to be in this moment. And aversion is just as great an object of awareness as a state of bliss, as a subtle, subtle sense of breath, as a gross sense of confusion and nothing's clear or a really, really subtle experience. Because we're always focusing on the object, but the objects aren't what wake up. The objects aren't where wisdom comes. It's from that clarity, that purity of mind, the steadiness of awareness that isn't colored 
by greed, by aversion, by confusion, allows the clear seeing, and it's lawful. I can't tell you how many moments in a row you have to have. It's not that, not that. Seven million trillion moments of pure chitta without any greed, and boom, you're enlightened. Sorry, you know, it's not so straightforward. But it's lawful. So an insight is not like, well, we put in our time, we put in our time, and we hope to God that sometime, well, I can't, there's no God, but some, somehow some magical moment will occur and we'll be free. It's lawful. It's lawful. And all we have to do is take care of our awareness, not try to figure it all out. All we have is this moment. This moment is all there is right now. What's happening? And what's the quality of the awareness that's meeting it? And so, as the Buddha said, you know, when the mind is... This, he says this with ill will, but it's the same for craving. It's the same for confusion. When one dwells with a mind oppressed by ill will, or oppressed by craving, you could say, and does not understand, as it really is, the escape from arisen ill will or craving, on that occasion one neither knows or sees, as it really is, one's own good, or the good of others, or the good of both. And I like that, because he's saying we don't see clearly, but he's also the clear-seeing manifests in seeing the good for oneself and for others. You can see he's not making it some little subtle esoteric, I just see this for myself and then I'm separated from the world. It's seeing what's good for ourselves, what's good for others. So this quality of knowing whatever the object is, what I want to suggest is we can take that quality of the knowing and when that's not colored by greed, by aversion, by confusion, we recognize things accurately. And when we're recognizing accurately, craving doesn't make any sense. Well, what we can recognize accurately is also craving itself. And so a retreat, whereas Guy said last night, things are more simple. You know, so when it's not quite so complex... It gives us the space and the time, and the mind's a little bit quieter. Yes, it is, believe it or not. It gives us the time and the space to actually explore the nature of craving. To see, is it true or not? Don't just believe what I say. Don't believe what the Buddha says. But take the quality of clear seeing and look and see, is it really true? Is it really true? What's the problem with craving? Is it increasing suffering? Is it keeping me lost in confusion? So start to look and see. Now, when we first, often when I first start talking about craving, I want to clarify what that means, because often, and maybe you're, a lot of you already have a lot of experience, so maybe you don't have a reaction, but often people find quite some reaction starts to come up in their mind when you talk about um, the heart and mind liberation of non-clinging. And they start to think non-clinging, and again, we're on the object. Well, what's wrong with wanting to enjoy the beauty of nature? What's wrong with wanting to take care of my family? What's wrong with wanting enlightenment? What's wrong with wanting ice cream? Or fill in the blanks for yourself, you know? And the other extreme that one can go to is and and 
and sometimes it's subtle, we don't realize we're going there, is to think, well, I know that when it's pleasant, the habit of mind is to lean into it, to want, to hold on to it. So therefore, if wanting is bad, so we've already gone to bad and good, which isn't what he's saying. He's saying it causes suffering, not bad and good. If it's bad, and if freedom, enlightenment means no clinging, then a good way to not cling is to never get close to anything pleasant. And if I start enjoying something pleasant, then I'm in trouble. So neither of these two, I'm not putting forward either of these as useful or helpful, but it's often what we do. So I think in a beautiful place like this, it's a great spot to explore the subtleties of this. Because we're not saying, you know, craving, wanting, is suffering, it's bad. Therefore, we should avoid all beauty, all pleasantness. It's impossible. Every experience that comes we, we taste has a flavor in the way our mind experiences as being somewhat pleasant or a little bit unpleasant or kind of neutral. That's not in our control. That arises moment to moment with the mind. It's one of the factors that arises in the mind, this perceiving some pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It just keeps going like that. Like Guy said, you know, we wouldn't have any suffering if everything was pleasant. Although I wonder, actually. I, I think there still would be because it would still all be impermanent. Um, we just cling, 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 cling. But it's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Awakening, freedom from clinging, doesn't change that. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. If we think we're getting to some enlightened place where it's pleasant, 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 forget about it. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and a lot faster than I'm saying it. You know, how many thoughts have you had? How many sensations come in your body? How many sounds? How many sights? All of them are pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. We mostly don't notice it. When we don't notice it, that's when the mind leans into the pleasant. And so, anyway, the point is, it's not about setting up an environment where there's never any pleasant. Can't do it. But it's also not about setting up an environment where every moment of pleasure can be fulfilled. Because then, although a lot of us in this Western culture have a lot more access to try and do that than in a lot of other places. It doesn't make us happier, but it makes it harder to see through the suffering of craving. So, to talk about, you know, what's wrong with wanting to take care of your family? What's wrong with wanting enlightenment? I want to talk about what um, this word craving means. It's very specific, as with many of the words the Buddha uses. He uses this word craving as a translation of a Pali word, tanha, which is more literally translated as thirst. Now, in English, we tend to use the word want or the word desire, and it covers quite a wide range, doesn't it? This word tanha, thirst, is talking about not the object that's wanted. Remember, this is just what my teacher is talking about. We go on the object. What's wrong with wanting enlightenment? It's got nothing to do with enlightenment. It's got to do with the quality. It's a mental factor, a mental quality of tanha that we experience in the mind, in the heart, in the psyche. And that quality, when it arises in relationship to any object, thirst is a pretty good translation. It's that quality of, oh, got to have it, right? That, oh, got to have it, 
can arise in relationship to anything. Now, there's other words in Pali and there's other experiences that we might say in English want. Like I said, you know, I, I want to take care of my family. I want to eat. I want something really good to eat. It changes. So there's a word chanta in Pali, which kind of means willingness to do. It can be interest, excitement, energy to do. And there's other ways that we would do. I want to take care of my family. It could be a kind of compassion. It could be a sense of, this is something really important in my life. I need to do it. It's the quality that's called aditana, determination, which is a wholesome quality. But tanha is very specific. It's this quality of thirst and explore for yourself. You can kind of feel it. It's almost like it narrows your vision. It's like the sense of clinging. And very quickly, it moves from tanha to the next upadana, which is translated as clinging or grasping. It's like, I want this, and the mind just kind of fastens around it. And then we start making choices based on that. So here, it's because it's not about the object. So take an example of, see how it comes up for you tomorrow, but say when it's time for lunch. Now there can be a sense that you're hungry and the body's hungry. You feel hunger. That doesn't have to be tanha. You feel hunger. There's a sense it's time to go eat. And we would say in English, I want to go eat. But notice not the food, but the quality in the mind. The mind is aware of what you're doing. I want to go eat. But you're present. You go eat. There's the, that's not tanha. Now you're sitting here, you can have the same feelings of hunger, or you don't even have feelings of hunger. But the image of pizza comes up in your mind. You think, I really, pizza. I'm really hungry. I really need. Pizza. That's already into grasping, right? Can you feel the difference? Then notice, maybe you're not going to get pizza, but you, you smell something there at lunch. Maybe it's whatever, you know. So, oh, you're walking up to lunch. When's the bell going to ring? I hear them banging around in there. I smell that garlic. What's it going to be? And it's time. You're walking to lunch. What's the quality in your mind, in your heart, as you're walking to lunch? When there's tanha, you can feel it like you're being led by the nose, you know. My brother used to have a a hunting hound dog. And to me, that dog epitomized. It's like a, a, a metaphor for how craving works in our mind. A really sweet dog, but bred, you know, so finely to, to smell things. It wasn't a bloodhound, but it was that kind of really fine scent. And the poor dog was enthralled. To the scent, to the nose, it would. If you let it out in the backyard, his nose is on the ground, and he would just have to run around the sides and all the bushes and smell everything anywhere a possum had been or a squirrel or whatever. He just had to. He couldn't just go out and lie down in the sun. He had to smell everything. Every time he came new in the house, any new smell of food or a new person or dirty clothes or a dirty tissue or anything with you know human animal smells, he had to go smell it. He couldn't. Just it was. Painful to watch the thing. <laughs> and I thought, this is what craving does. You get that idea of pizza in your mind, you know? And we don't turn around and look at the craving. We're like, ah, I've got to have it. And then we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> but can you see the difference? So when people, and this is one of, this is one of my own particular bugaboos, only me, but often I hear people talk about, and teachers too, about having good desire and unwholesome desire. And I think that's very confusing. 
because they'll say, well, good desire, you know, desire for awakening or to care for your family or desire to practice is good, but, you know, desire to, you know, eat pizza and just, not that there's anything wrong with pizza, but just to get lost in craving is bad. That's pointing to the object. It's got nothing to do with the object. Craving as a quality of heart and mind is what brings us into confusion and gets in the way of seeing clearly. It's got nothing to do with what the object is. So I could have the the thought of freedom from clinging. What I just read the Buddha said, you know, I've discovered liberation through non-clinging. I could hear that in a way that's uplifting. Yes, that's inspirational. That's possible. And it brings energy. And then I could say in English, I want to be free, but it's not that craving. I could also, and I certainly have, and I bet some of you have too, sit there and go, when in God's name am I going to be free from clinging? How can I ever be enlightened? (laughs) Right? That's craving. That's not craving, it's grasping. It's not about the enlightenment, it's the quality in the mind. The moment of mind is the seed of freedom, it's the seed of suffering. What's arising in the heart and mind right now? And so taking that that attitude of interest, we can really begin to explore how craving acts when it's arising. The way I was just describing it, you know, watching how you're walking in to lunch when there's craving or when there's not, that's how we bring um, interest, wisdom, clear seeing, satipanya, mindfulness wisdom into our practice. You're really... We don't say, oh, I hate this, craving's bad. We tend to do that. Oh, no, I've seen so much clinging since I got here. It's just hopeless. It's not personal. It's just a lawful process of nature. It's the habit of minds, not just yours, all of ours, that when there's not much awareness and when something pleasant comes up, and often it's a pleasant thought, the tendency of mind is to go into it, to lean into it, and and clinging arises, wanting arises. The next moment, just like guy with the aversion, awareness can arise. And instead of hating the clinging, that's just jumping from clinging to aversion. As one of my teachers says, aversion is really thwarted craving. You don't get this, so you're aversive. That's not any better. Not helpful. But to bring that moment of mindfulness was, ah, oh, clinging. It's like this. And to really explore how does it feel, how does it act, What's the effect in my mind? What's the effect in my choices? Really, just to see moment to moment to moment to moment, and it's that steadiness of awareness that is the condition for wisdom, insight to arise. That steadiness of awareness on any object. Just take care of the awareness. Doesn't, you don't need a better object. Craving's a great object. Really to explore, and it gets fascinating when you don't take it personally, because it's amazing, unbelievable, the power of craving in our minds at times. Have you ever seen that? Have you noticed that? And not just in our few little minds, at least we're looking at it, but the power of craving in the world. So to explore it, the habit, it's so seductive. So... (laughs) Have you ever noticed a time when 
just to explore it when it comes up here in little things. That's what's so great about a retreat. Walking meditation, I find a particularly good time, sometimes, to explore when wanting comes up. So you're walking along. See the difference between when you're present with just what's happening and then when wanting comes up. Okay, it might be the example of food. One that often comes up is just the desire. Someone's starting to walk past and there's this craving to look at the other person. Have you noticed that yet? I don't know if you've been here long enough. But sometimes on a retreat, especially inside when they're more like in the same room, the craving to look at the person walking by can be so strong. It's unbelievable. And so you say to yourself, I'm not going to look. I'm just going to be with the craving and see what gives rise to it. What's the effect of it, you know? And sometimes it's so strong, you can't not look. You can't. The craving is just so strong. We can't be with it. The mindfulness isn't strong enough. The craving is stronger. So we look. Not that it matters. And then we look and go, well, that really did us a world of good, didn't it? Because <laughs> what comes from the looking? Some judging, right? They're better, they're worse, or all these ideas about them, or the ideas about you, or why, or your ideas because you looked, or whatever. Then you just get lost in thought, and then you're thinking about, oh, my God. And then you come back, and you're restless, and you're bored. And why should I bother walking anymore anyway? It's almost over. No, it's not. But it's over now. I'm out of here, right? Keep, even if you can't not look, keep paying attention. So it's not as if the craving has won, so give up. Never. Just take care of your awareness. As one, again, my teacher Tejini was saying, he's very funny. He said, so you're watching craving. You're watching how your whole world shrinks as soon as craving comes in the mind. You're walking totally at peace in that craving for whatever the heck. Craving to think about something. Craving to go running. Craving to go have pizza. Craving to stop walking. Whatever. Everything else it's just not very enjoyable. And it was beautiful before, but who cares now? You just want to go do this other thing. The whole world has shrunk. Notice that. Keep noticing. That's all. And then you can't not do it, so you do it. You stop walking. You go in. You have the tea. You wait for the, you know, the peace that comes because the seductive message of craving is just follow me and everything will be so nice. So you go. But you're not noticing what's going on. You get waiting, you're waiting for the peace to come. And there's a subtle moment of peace, but it's not about the tea or looking at that looking at the person you don't even notice the peace because too much other stuff came too quick. But if you come in and have tea, there might be a moment of peace. But it's not the tea. It's because the craving stopped. Oh, so briefly, but it stopped. And if you're keeping to pay attention, you'll notice that. And that's what's so fascinating, that the peace and ease is not about getting what we want. It's about that moment of no craving. And that moment of no craving is available a whole lot more when we're willing to just stop and look at the craving. So what my teacher says is that we tend to think, oh, I failed, so we stop paying attention when we're acting on it. But if you keep paying attention, he says, okay, so you did the thing, so craving got its way. But you were paying attention, so you also got your way because there was a steadiness of awareness even when acting on the craving, and so wisdom is coming from that. So just take care of your awareness. 
So just noticing different ways the craving comes up. And now when I start to see it come up in my experience, I don't go, oh, no, craving. Well, I might. But mostly it's like, great. It's a chance to explore it again. Because believe me, it's going to keep coming. There's a reason when the Buddha did his Four Noble Truths and the second truth being the cause of our confusion, our suffering, he picked tanha. Out of all experience, what could he pick as saying the cause of suffering? Tanha. So it's not just, I'm not just picking this for the heck of it, you know, as one to look at. It's really very central to our confusion, to our dis-ease, to our, our sense of unsatisfiedness. And what's so seductive about craving is it's telling us it's the thing that's going to bring us the satisfaction, but it's the thing that actually increases the dissatisfaction. There's a an aspect, um, something the Buddha talks about, Bhikkhu Bodhi describes it as three movements in the unfolding process of insight. So it's a ways to explore anything, but here we want to use craving and grasping, which is to, with our steadiness of awareness, notice the whole process with craving of gratification, exploring the gratification and the danger and the escape. And I like those three because, I again, the Buddha is so pragmatic, you know, because, as I say, often people think he's saying, well, nothing is worth clinging to. He does say that. And so then, because we don't understand that, we jump to him saying, that means everything's bad, everything's crap. Nothing's worth clinging to. The world is just dull and gray, and and who wants to live like that anyway? And what about passion? And what about beauty? And what about, you know, and then we're gone. But he's saying there is gratification. Notice it. Be aware of it. See what it is. And when he talks with, with craving and moving into grasping, he talks about several areas. One, of course, is sense desire, which guys spoke a bit about last night. And that's an obvious one sense pleasures to experience the gratification. Again, being here with the beauty, it's great to see. What is the gratification? Explore that for yourself. When you go outside and there's beautiful sights, experience the pleasure of it. When there's uh, a concept of something about nature and you're having a thought about it, or a memory, or some idea, and it's a pleasant thought, there's gratification in that. When you feel a sense of just the appreciation of the beauty, and it's not clinging, but it's a wholesome kind of joy, there's a, a, a gratification and appreciation in that. So noticing that, just with the steadiness of awareness, that's not the same as clinging. But mostly, when we're not aware, it moves so quickly into clinging. Mostly we don't notice that, but if you're paying attention, you'll see the difference because as soon as the wanting, the clinging comes in, as I said before, the whole thing narrows. I don't know if you've seen this. Sometimes when I'll go outside and I'm just not thinking about it, but just being there, not trying to see beauty. Have you ever go out and try to see how beautiful it is? Isn't it different from when you just walk out? It just hits you. Or you're just being there kind of quiet and just a smell of the freshness comes through And it's just so lovely. It's just a moment of pure loveliness. The mind isn't colored with with wanting anything. It's just a moment of pure pleasure. That's the gratification. 
what's the danger of that? Because there is gratification with sense desire. The danger is, of course, one that we we come to rely on that gratification. That gratification, not just a sense of pure beauty of the smell and then gone. That's fine. There's no danger in that. That's gone. That's gratification with wisdom. But mostly, the next step is either, that's so nice, how can I get more? And the, the relying on the gratification for our sense of self, really, for a sense of feeling okay with ourselves, or just for a sense of, I need more pleasure, that's the only way I can bear it in this world. It comes very quickly. If I go out and there's a beauty, and then, oh, I want to see more. And if I walk here, maybe I'll see this tree. And if I walk here, maybe I'll smell that smell. And I saw those little goslings yesterday. Maybe I can go see them again. And what about the robin? And it's different from just the appreciation. There's that tanha, that craving, that pulling. And the beauty isn't gratifying, actually, then. You know, it's like, it's not enough. I need more, I need more, I need more. And the danger of gratification, the danger also is that none of these experiences last more than a fraction of a second. And so if we're relying on the pleasure to be okay, or even the pleasure, the gratification on the most subtle level, is it feeds the sense of me. Really, I'm the one being gratified. Not that that's bad, it's just not accurate. Just notice that. So the danger is that gratification and the seduction of the craving itself. Because even the Buddha said, when he described the second truth, he said, just this craving accompanied by delight, which seeks pleasure now here and now there. That's the way he described it. It's so seductive. The craving seems to be, but when we're not really looking at it, accompanied by delight. And so it's saying, yes, this gratification is really, it's the best it's ever going to be. This is as good as it gets. So let's have some more. And this is delight. This is happiness. And when you haven't looked, like we were talking before, when you look at the craving itself and see when the craving ends, the peace is there. Then we know this story it's telling us of the seduction is not true. That's the danger of it. But mostly we forget to turn back and look at the mind and go, yeah, that's right. That'll make me happy. And the more often that that gratification can be fulfilled, we forget how brief it is because we lean into the next one. And just this little story, a very, very wise friend of mine who totally knows everything I'm saying and knows it better than me, we were sitting talking and this person really likes cookies. And this person really is a rather, not set in their ways, but they have a routine that they like to follow. (laughs) And this routine is every day after lunch, a little bit of milk and two cookies, good cookies. So we're one place together doing it, and the person's having their cookies. And uh, we got talking about craving, just this subject, and I was saying, okay, so... um, this is craving. The person goes, no, it's not suffering, though. So what do you mean there's craving? You say, oh, there's craving. I want the cookie. I get the cookie. The cookie's fine. The craving's fine. There's no suffering there. 
I said, yeah, but what happens when you don't get the cookie? The person said, I'll always get a cookie. (laughs) That's the seduction of craving. I'll always get a cookie. And if we don't get a cookie, rather than rest in that, oh no, oh no, now what? The mind makes up something else to want. It's like almost we're afraid to turn around and look and see, oh, that peace is already here. Wang Po, who was a, um, a Chinese Zen teacher, said, This pure mind shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. Just in a moment. This one mind is the Buddha, the awakened one, and there is no distinction between Buddhas and beings and ordinary beings except that ordinary beings are attached to forms, attached to experience, attached to objects, and thus seek for Buddhahood outside of themselves. By this very seeking, they lose it. By this very seeking, to me the most poignant aspect of craving, of grasping, is that the promise it's giving us is happiness and ease and peace. And that happiness, that ease, that peace is already available in this pure mind, this pure moment of wakeful presence, of awareness that's not colored. doesn't matter what object's coming. We turn around and look. But the craving, the grasping itself is what hides that. And craving isn't a pleasant experience. So our deep habit of only wanting to go to the pleasant works against turning around and just sitting or walking or standing with the craving itself. So play with it. I promise you, craving won't kill you. It won't. And if pick a little one, okay? Don't pick the biggest one in your life. And sooner or later, you'll just be able to stand there with it or sit there with it and get interested in it and see what thoughts feed it and what does it feel like in the body and what's the sensations in the body and what thoughts make it stronger and what thoughts make it weaker. And notice when it's gone how it feels. Notice how it comes back again. It will go because everything goes. It's never even steady for one moment. It's just like Guy said, no feeling is final. Craving comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes. There's no need to be afraid of it. Sometimes it'll run us, but often it won't. Awareness is much stronger than craving. And when we start to taste that piece of the craving, we can just really play with it. No, I don't have to act on this necessarily. Just because craving's here, I don't have to act on it. Sometimes we will, okay, just keep on paying attention. Hmm. So one other aspect of craving, uh, of grasping I want to talk about, that Buddha talks about sense pleasures, and that's an easy one to see. This next one is views. And the third one is the particular view of personality or sense of self. And views are really fascinating to explore, A view is just simply an idea, a thought, or a a view of the world that we may not even recognize we have. That the grasping is basically what you'd call believing. Yeah, this is true. This is how it is. Now, at least, you see how, how painful it is even when we know it's a view. Take politics, 
I mean, we're not going to talk about politics, <laughs> but just take. And even when we absolutely know, right, we know that we're right, and those other guys are completely misguided morons, we know that, we know we're right, we may not even quite be able to get there to say it's a view. But maybe you could see they believe something completely different. Both of those are views. It's not about right or wrong. A view is a description. Of course we have opinions. Of course we have views. Of course we're going to vote. It's not that we don't hold that. But it's this sense of this is right and you're wrong that leads to, well, the political situation we have in this country and not only this country right now where opposing sides can hardly talk to each other. There's not an openness to explore when there's attachment to a view when there's grasping. Just as with, with sense pleasure, when we're grasping, it's like our awareness snaps shut. We see what we expect to see. We see what we're looking for. And so the view in our mind, it's easy enough to see when it's politics. And you see how much suffering there is in that, right? I mean, I imagine you can see that. But on many, many ways, this view is happening. A view will... Uh, color how we perceive an object and then how we perceive it. How Perception is just how we identify something. That will lead to how we think about it. How we think about it will become our description of the world and our actions and reactions in our mind. I'll give you a very simple example that I liked. It's funny when you can see through the attachment to the view right away. I was um, sitting in Burma last year, I think, I was on a retreat at a meditation center. And one day I was, I was walking up. There's a, there was a little walk and a Bodhi tree, which is like a, the kind of tree that the Buddha sat under in, when he was enlightened in Indian Bodh Gaya. So there's a Bodhi tree, not too old, young one, uh, in a kind of like a cement well, you know, and you can kind of walk around it. So I was walking up the path toward it, doing walking and seeing and just being aware. And there was a Burmese nun walking around it like this. So right away, my perception was, and you don't even think, oh, this is my perception. You think, this is what's happening. Oh, she's walking around it, you know, with devotion, you know, with an air of faith and devotion to the Bodhi tree. So that was my perception. And immediately, the thought that came from it was, oh, that's so lovely, you know, that expression of faith. And the next thought that came is, just a damn tree. I mean, what are you walking around holding your hands like it's just a tree, you know? It's not even the one the Buddha sat under. And this was all in like two, two seconds, you know? So I'd gone from faith and this to uh, judgment and aversion. And then I got up closer. She was walking around texting on her cell phone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Quick reset of the perception, you know? So that perception was accurate. Cracked me up. Totally cracked me up, you know. But then that whole world view, and that my first perception was totally built up on a world view of the faith of the Burmese nuns, which I know a lot of because I know a lot of Burmese nuns, but that was just a worldview that wasn't true. So you get a sense of it. Then I went the whole other way, you know. So this is a time when noticing the thoughts that are working in the back of the mind in terms of attachment to views can be really useful. It's something that comes up a lot in uh, meditation, in our practice, not only here, but in life. When you're starting to feel frustrated, for example, 
about your practice, whatever that means. You might just look. It's a time it's helpful to notice what thoughts might be working in the back of the mind, what good practice should look like, or what's supposed to be happening. Or after three days, I should be past this by now, right? This shouldn't be happening. Well, yata, bhuta, things as they have come to be, this should be happening. Why? Because it is happening. (laughs) Because it's happening, it should be happening, and it could not be otherwise. The next moment, how that moment of happening is met is a new moment. So when we can bring mindfulness and awareness to it without getting in the reaction, without the attachment to the view, oh, I think it should be like this, but it's like this. Okay. And we meet it with that freshness of awareness that isn't colored by attachment to a view, then there's the possibility to see accurately. Do you see how when there's that view we're attached to and we don't even know it, there's not the space to see clearly? And often that view is a kind of self-judgment, right? Most self-judgment comes out of some view, and you can look and see how it got planted there. But it's arising in the moment. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. This is happening and it shouldn't be happening because I'm no good. And so this is a time that is useful to kind of just stop a minute and think, what, what thought's going on back there? And sometimes when I do that and I notice, I'll call up a thought and the thought will be something like, my experience should be better than this by now. <laughs> something like And I go, well, that's inane. I can't be believing. That's a stupid thought. Stupid has nothing to do with it. Knowing intellectually it's not true has nothing to do with it. But just looking at it clearly and go, oh, in this moment, I'm really believing that. You know, It should be clearer than it is. And once you see the view, the attachment can be broken. So again, it's just another form of craving, another form of clinging. And when that clinging's there, this is the danger. It blinds us to seeing clearly. What's the escape? And this is what's so wonderful, and it's just what I've been saying. The escape isn't sitting down and figuring it all out. The escape is just that, that Tai Chi move from believing, being absorbed in the object, the object at this point being the view, or that not liking what's happening, or that this should be different, or that I love this, I need this, from the object to the awareness itself. Oh, I think I can't do this. I think I'm no good. I think it should be like this. I think all nuns are have beautiful faith, whatever it is. As soon as we move from involvement with the object, liking, disliking, getting lost in wanting, to looking at the wanting itself. That's the escape. It's not that we have to give up all pleasant objects. It's not that we have to give up all views. It's not that we even have to give up the sense of self. The sense of self is also another view that arises based on clinging. So, for example... And this, I can only touch on it briefly, but just look and see. Any sensation that comes in the body. Aren't there times when there's just a little sensation, a little ping, it comes and goes. There's no no big whoop, right? It's not suffering, pleasant, unpleasant. It's just what it is. There's no particular sense of self about that. 
another sensation comes and there's a click. Oh, my God, this sensation in my knee, it means I can't. It's going to be like this forever. That is, of course, aversion and clinging, wanting it different. But notice how the sense of me got really strong. That's what's called personality view. Any particular sense experience, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, often it's thought. The thought that, ah, this shouldn't be happening, it's happening because I can't do it. It's just a thought. But the clinging to it, in that moment of clinging, it becomes me. And that's the moment of the arising, of the sense of self. As Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who I think Guy mentioned last night, said, the sense of self is simply an experience, a passing experience that arises whenever there's grasping or clinging in the mind. That's all. The escape, just turn around and notice the clinging. Notice the sense of self. It's just an experience that comes and goes like anything. The escape isn't to uproot it all. The escape is to take our interest out of rooting around in the experience and take care of the awareness. Oh, wanting it different is like this. Attachment to this memory is like this. I can't possibly do this practice. It's hopeless. Thought is like this. So we get more and more and more interested in taking our stand in the awareness. And that lets us see how craving works, how clinging works. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to believe anything I said. You don't have to remember any of it. Just get interested in noticing. When craving arises, what's the object of the craving? What's the experience in the heart and mind? Stay with it. Notice how it behaves. Notice as it passes. And keep noticing the state of calm, the state of peace, the state of ease, the state of dis-ease because we don't like calm and peace and we want something a little more intense and we've got to get something going. <laughs> Watch it. Over and over and over. The gratification, the danger, and the escape. And I think someone today, a guy was talking about calm today. Calm is the way into peace. Notice how often we don't like it. We think it's uncomfortable. It's unfamiliar. That's okay. That's okay. Get used to it. Notice craving. Craving stops. It loses its seductive story. And we start to notice more and more how it blasts away the peace. You don't have to stop it. You just have to open to the awareness. So I'll just close with a short quotation from Deepa Ma, since Guy mentioned her last night, with her amazing mind. She's little. She's like about four feet tall. Amazing little lady. She said, there is so much sameness in ordinary life. We're always experiencing everything through the same set of lenses. But once greed, hatred, and confusion are gone, you see everything fresh and new all the time. Every moment is new. Life was dull before. Now every day, every moment is full of taste and zest. Taste and zest. That's what craving promises, but it can't really deliver. Awareness can. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.